Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. I call Forest Hills. It's always good to be with you guys. And uh, we're going to jump right in. We get 45 minutes to preach in Brighton and 30 here, so we're going to fly. Um, so this passage that we're looking at is uh, really a, a climax summary of what the author Paul has been teaching us ever since chapter 4, when he said, live a life worthy of the gospel we've received. And this week, he's warning us about some common pitfalls that you and I fall into. Uh, that really derail us from living out the gospel and as a result can really cause harm for us or for others or for God's glory. So for example, in this passage, he says, hey guys, in verse 15, uh, don't live as unwise, but as wise. He's like, be careful of that pitfall. Verse 16, he says, don't waste your time, but steward your time for God's glory and the good of others. Verse 17, he says, hey guys, be careful of this pitfall. Don't be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. In verse 18, he says, don't get filled with alcohol, but rather be filled with the Spirit. And so that's why Paul starts out his summary statement in this passage by saying this, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, as if to say, hey guys, let's pay attention. There are landmines, and then if we step on them in life, they cause us hurt and others harm. And so this is really important for us to walk carefully, as verse 15 said. That word translated carefully there in verse 15 carries this connotation of something done cautiously and intentionally or or to really give careful attention to. To look carefully how you walk suggests a purpose or a direction that you and I are to walk in in life. And guys, life is not aimless nor is it a series of busy or frantic activities followed by some just downtime and rest time for ourselves. To walk carefully means to be steady and make progress towards the chief goal of what? Of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. And so we should walk and watch carefully how we walk because there's gonna be missteps and missteps are easy and the consequences are disastrous. Let me give you an example. So we have two little girls in our home, uh, Kiana and Shasera, a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And in the middle of the night, we take them out to go to the restroom. So we go into the room, wake them up, take them potty, and then bring them back to bed. But you know, parents, that if you don't clean up the floor before you walk in that room, there are death landmines everywhere. They're called Barbies and Legos and little wands and crowns. And we've got to walk carefully into the room. And if we step on those things, it causes a lot of harm and heartache. And that's what this passage is about. Paul is saying, walk carefully. Turn on the light of wisdom, if you would, and be mindful of the landmines. And he gives us those four landmines. So this text, guys, is really gonna require us some effort and energy on our part, but it's motivated by the gospel. Jesus walked carefully on our behalf to live a perfect life, so that we can walk in his steps that are for our good and for God's glory. And we've got a sailor in the room. Matt is uh, one of your elders and he sails all the time. And any traveler or sailor knows that if they're inattentive to direction and progress, 
They'll never arrive at the destination. And so this section causes us to slow down in this summary climax of what Paul has been doing since chapter four. He's causing us to slow down and saying, let's be attentive. Let's watch out for the Barbies and the Legos and the crowns that are landmines on the ground that can blow up your life, cause harm for you and harm for others. And so this morning, we wanna be attentive to one key question. And here's what that question is. What does it mean to walk in wisdom? That's what this entire passage is. What does it mean to walk in wisdom? There's four things that Paul lays out here. Let me start with the first one. To walk wisely means that you steward your time for God's glory. Let's look at verse 15 again. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk. There's landmines. Don't be unwise, but be wise. He says in verse 16, making the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil, he says. It's interesting that Paul's first stop in this big summary statement is a conversation about how you and I best use our time. It's a brief comment in this text, but guys, it carries enormous importance. Guys, our society is really a hurried society, don't we? We we seem determined to pack as many activities into a brief amount of time as possible, as if we think this, that busyness equates to worthiness, resulting in lives that are frazzled and we're fatigued and we're on the fringe of burnout all the time, right? And we must consider how we use our time. And like Christ, we must figure out a balance between work and rest. And guys, we can't find our worth in our productivity or our activity, but in the gospel identity that you and I are beloved and we're blood-bought and we're enough, regardless of the list of accomplishments that you may have. Most households in our society spend at least four to five hours a day watching TV and movies. And guys, I love my TV. I love my Netflix. I love Disney+. Plus. We've got two kids. But we often don't maybe consider how much this content is really shaping our hearts and our minds often away from the things of God rather than towards them. And other diversions take our attention too. It's the endless scrolling on Instagram, right? And, and Twitter and, and Facebook, or we watch TikTok after TikTok video because they serve like a refuge to us. It's where we run to to excite ourselves or maybe to numb ourselves from the hardships of life. But rather than serving like a refuge, social media can serve as a thief. It steals our time and our joy and our rest as we anxiously scrolling measure our lives and our experiences against others, wishing our lot in life was just so much better. And guys, this is not how God desires for us to use our time. For it robs us of what our hearts are truly after, which is what? A life of excitement and joy and pleasure, all of which is a life that's found by carefully walking in the will of God. And that's laid out for us in the pages of scripture and not in the pictures of social media. A good translation of this text would be this. Buy up every opportunity. Time is going by and evil will use it if Christians do not. That phrase in verse 16, the days are evil, is just a general description of the presence of evil in the world. So let's consider for a moment, how can we better use our time. 
Consider this for a moment. How much time do you give to God and his word and prayer? What fills your mind the most? Is it scripture or is it streaming services on your TV or your computer or phone? If God is truly who he says he is in John chapter 10, he says that he's the one to come that may give life and that you may have it abundantly. So how much time do you and I spend learning more about this life of abundance we can have with God? Or what about this? How much time do you give to investing in other people? People in this church or our friends and neighbors in the community? How much time do we invest pointing others to Christ? Guys, we can't just think about ourselves in the church here, right? We can't think about our own lives because around us, there's 6.5 million people in the greater Boston area where only 3% have a relationship with this God of hope and love. The gospel calls us to consider your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers that are without Christ sitting this very morning. So how often do you spend your time praying for them, praying for this church? or sharing the gospel with your neighbors through conversations with them. Or maybe last, maybe last one, there's lots of implications here, but what about this last one? How much time do you spend resting? Like taking time away from work and studies and the busyness of life, no matter how necessary those things are, are we practicing this biblical principle called Sabbath? That word Sabbath is just a biblical term that means we take time off of work to trust that God works on your behalf. So resting biblically is really about trusting, trusting that God is the provider and the advancer of your life and actually not you. And when you trust him better, what happens? You rest better. And God calls each of us to invest in this one type of day rest, so that we remember and trust that God is working for us on our behalf. And so church, this is one way we can steward our time for God's glory. Well, number two, what's it mean to walk wisely? It means this, it means you seek God's will, but you do it in God's way. This is really key for us to understand. Look at verse 17. Paul says this, he's the author of this book. He's writing to a small church plant, just like the one I have. And he says this, therefore do not be foolish, meaning in your thoughts, don't be unwise in your thinking, but use your thinking this way. He says, but understand in your thinking what the will of the Lord is. The main emphasis here is that you and I understand and then live out of God's will, his good design for you and your flourishing and not our own. Because listen, here's the, there's our secular mantra or what we might tell ourselves in culture. This is the mantra about how we follow uh, wisdom. It's follow your heart, right? Or trust your gut. Well, what happens if you had pizza last night and your gut feels a little gassy? Should you trust where your gut is leading you? Maybe if it's to the restroom, you should trust your gut, right? But should those be things that we follow as a mantra? Trust your heart or follow your gut? Guys, a lot of that thinking has got many an of us into more harm than good. Listen, guys, how can we trust our heart if our hearts aren't sovereign or perfect or at many times good like God is? And how can we trust our gut when our gut often responds to feelings rather than facts? Feelings that often are misguided by our biases and 
our misconceptions and our limited understanding of the facts at play in the future that's in front of us. So the aim at this verse is really to guide our minds and to guard our hearts, to seek and to trust God's will for living rather than our own. Because listen, God's ways are higher and better than our ways. And God is a faithful captain, right? To guide us throughout the storms of life and the anxieties we have about the future. So listen, in this passage, it's really important for us to distinguish between a general will of God and a particular will of God. Now, general will of God relates to this general way in which God calls and leads and guides his people for their good. And this general will is the same for his people that we should pray, right? That we should share the gospel, that we should avoid sin. These are God's general will for us. His general will is found in scripture and the general commands and principles that he lays out there. But often we don't struggle with God's general will, right? Like we don't have this decision every week, like, God, should I like murder my roommate or should I just talk to them about the dirty dishes in the sink and maybe we can have a conversation. like, you and I as Christians don't struggle with God's general will. What is his general will, right? Love God, love your neighbor, speak truthfully, share the gospel, avoid sin. We don't struggle with his general will, but what do you and I understand? What do we struggle with? We struggle to understand his particular will, his specific will for you individually. So his particular will really extends to the particulars of your each unique lives. And this is different for each of us, right? What career should we pursue or who should we marry or should we stay in Boston or should we move? Should I become a member of this church? What's God's particular will for me? And God is telling us in this passage, do not be foolish or misguided in your understanding, but use your understanding to know what his will is for you. And listen, I hear this, I've been in ministry for about 12 years and I hear this phrase a lot. I hear God is calling me to blank. And listen, that is a good way to articulate what God's doing in your heart. But listen, I think a lot of times there's something else calling in the name of God, prank calling you, thinking that God's leading you to do something, but it often contradicts scripture. And so what we think is God calling us is really our own selfish desires. What's most comfortable for me? What makes me happy? And so we build our own castle of comfort rather than advancing God's kingdom for his glory. So what should we do when we're making big life decisions or small life decisions? How do we find his particular will for our life when maybe it's not in the general scripture in the Bible? And guys, if we understand how to do this, it saves us a lot of heartache and saves us a lot of harm as we try to pursue God's kingdom. Let me give you just six very mega quick things this morning about how should we determine if something is God's particular will for our life? Let me give you the first thing. It's just really easy test is like, what does the Bible say? Because God's never going to lead you something that's contradictory to God's word. So the first thing is just, what's the Bible say? Uh, The Bible's wonderful. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says this, all scripture, meaning New Testament, Old Testament, is really breathed out or given by God. And what's its use? It's profitable for teaching and for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness, that mankind may be complete and equipped for every good work. So the first test when you're trying to discern what's God's will, is it according to God's word? It's a great test for us to look at first. If it contradicts the Bible, it's not God's will for you. Number two, have you prayed constantly about the decision before you? Not just one time a week, but is your heart set on bringing this before God all the time. 
James 1.5 says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, then let them ask God who gives generously to all without approach and it will be given to them. Guys, God wants to answer our prayers and give us guidance. And so if we lack this wisdom, God wants to give it generously. So have you prayed about it? Even 1 Thessalonians 5.17 goes further. Paul tells us to pray without ceasing, without stopping. We're to pray constantly about the decisions before us and let God lead and guide us through that. Number three, now this is the biggest one. This is the hard one when we're determining God's particular will for our life. We've got to ask, what's the motivation? What's the motivation of this decision? Is it building God's kingdom or is it building your castle, your castle of comfort, your castle of security, your castle of happiness? In Matthew 6, Jesus really speaks to this very point. He says, listen, don't be anxious about your life, meaning what you'll eat or what you drink or where you'll work or who you'll date or marry or where should you move or how can I afford a house here? He's saying, stop worrying about temporal things, but focus on eternal things. Focus on God's kingdom as your motivation for decisions, not your castle. And he ends this section in verse 33 of Matthew chapter six by saying this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his way of life called righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Do you know what Jesus is saying? He wants to form this relationship with you where if you pursue God's kingdom first, then the things you're concerned about, your money or your house or your job, they'll be added to you. Doesn't mean he's gonna buy you a house, doesn't mean he's gonna buy you some fancy car, but what it does mean is that he wants you to reprioritize your life. If you pursue God's kingdom and not your castle, then what does God take care of? Your life. But we're so anxious about caring about our life that we just toil away year after year after year, anxiety after anxiety after anxiety, because we have the priorities wrong. And so God wants to say, if you pursue my ways in my kingdom, I'll take care of the others so you can redirect your attention to me. Does that make sense? Guys, this is huge when we're thinking about church life in Boston. Christian, if I can speak to you just for a moment, it's hard to live here. It's expensive to live here. It's hard to wanna own a home. But God calls us to love this city and invest in this city and pour out our heart and our life for the people here because Jesus loves them. So Christian, for some of you, you need to make this church your home. You need to invest here. You need to plan to live here long-term, not because it's easy, not because it's near family, not because it's cheap, it's because it's worth it. God's people in this city that don't yet know him, it's worth it of your time. And when you get to kingdom in glory in heaven, you wanna be able to tell God, God, I, I gave you my heart here. I don't have a home to show you. I don't have a car. I don't have all this investment, but what I have is yours. I invested my life. I trusted you with your purposes. And this is what I gave. And hopefully around you, you'll notice that people have come to faith or they've strengthened in their walk with Jesus because you stayed and you committed to God's kingdom rather than building your castle, amen? That's a hard word for us. The fourth thing real quick when we're discerning God's will is what has counsel told you? Like good counsel, meaning biblical counsel is people that know you well and know God well. So listen, Google is not counsel. Google is information, but counsel helps with transformation. Okay, so I want you to use good godly wisdom, people that know you well and know God well. Proverbs eleven fourteen says this, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in abundance of counselors, there is safety. 
So listen, Pastor Stephen did not ask me to say this, but listen, make his job easier by not making foolish decisions. Decisions, don't say it like that either. Uh, don't be foolish with your decision-making. Seek wise counsel. Listen, before you make a big or small decision, at least run the concept by at least three people who are good and godly. Run it by them. Before you decide on it, before you move, before you invest in something, run it by three people that know God well and know you well. And you know what that'll do? Save you from a ton of heartache and a ton of counseling time from any leader in the church. Counseling time is wonderful. We should seek counseling and we should do it in a biblical way. And this is what we're encouraging. Last two things here, how do we serve God's will? Um, we ask the question, how's your heart? If you're trying to make a big decision and you're not walking with God, listen, you can't trust those feelings. If you and I are struggling with seasons of, of darkness or walking through a sin struggle, listen, God loves you in that place, but you shouldn't be making huge decisions in that place. You should invite God's counsel and will in. And so if you're in this season where you feel distant from God, then let's not make huge rational or irrational decisions. Let's make sure that our heart is in tune with God. And last thing we've got to ask this question in making big decisions, do you see God guiding you or is the enemy tempting you towards comfort? Listen, I'm a pastor of a small church in Brighton. And if I was offered a job for $300,000 as a teacher, that would better help my family, would it not? I could serve the community that way, right? But a good opportunity, does that mean that that's God's will for my life? God's will for my life may be the hard road, maybe a challenging task. So just because it's an open door of opportunity doesn't mean that I should take it because often the enemy tempted with what? Bread for Jesus. Tempted with a good thing. The enemy tempted Jesus with all the kingdoms of the earth. That's power and position. So we must consider here, is God the one guiding us or is the enemy tempting us down a path that looks like it's good, but it's actually gonna bring us distraction away from God's will? So that's how maybe we would discern what is the will of God. So let's not be foolish or lacking in thinking, but let's do this according to biblical principles. And perhaps we wouldn't struggle so much with discerning God's particular will for important decisions if we were more accustomed to discerning God's general will through our life according to his word. So that's what it means to see God's will, God's way. Number three, to walk wisely means this. It's to seek fulfillment in God and nothing else. Verse 18 says this. He says, do not get drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. Man, I love that contrast here, don't you? He says, don't get filled with wine, but rather what? Be filled with the spirit. Paul is highlighting a similarity in effect here. A person who is drunk, we say, is under the influence of alcohol, right? But a person who is spirit-filled is under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit. For when we are under the influence of the Holy Spirit, we don't lose control, but rather what? We gain control in the Lord. Overdrinking is as much of a real problem in the ancient world as it is today. And although drinking alcohol in itself is not sinful, the motive or the amount may be. You and I may look to alcohol to calm our nerves or to soothe us after a really long and stressful day. But if drinking becomes the avenue we lean on to care or comfort us, then it begins to replace God. And, we, and when we turn to it for care and because it's not God, then what happens is that it only enslaves us and harms us. 
Although drunkenness is viewed in this text, its command really applies to any excessive indulgence that we may have. As people, you and I were created to live in relation with God. And any practice that diminishes a person's awareness of God and the ability to respond to him suggests a life that's standing under this command of this text to not be drunk. Surely society's excessive focus on materialism and beauty aids and success and comfort and sex all fall under this this command to not be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. What the Spirit does is the exact opposite of alcohol. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous pastor of old, and he was also a physician, and he said this. He said, if you, you put the Holy Spirit into a textbook of pharmacology, I would put him under stimulants, for that's where he belongs, and he really does stimulate. He stimulates every faculty of our mind, unlike alcohol. The mind and the intellect and the heart and the will, he grants wisdom and understanding and good judgment. He stimulates those things. So medically and spiritually, he says, yes, I agree with Paul. Let us not get drunk with wine or anything else, but be filled with the Spirit. The call to be filled with the Spirit is a call to live in unity with God's will that is a design for your good and human flourishing. When we live in the Spirit, it's really enjoying the wholeness of God. And we're to be filled by God's Spirit and with God's Spirit. The command in this verse, however, is again, not just limited to drunkenness. It's not finding our fulfillment in creation, but rather the creator. And friends, if we're honest this morning, we can often fill our lives with all kinds of things that seek to comfort us and satisfy our longings for more. But friends, there's a ton of heartache when we look to creation to provide those things when only the creator can. And it's when Christ enters in your mind and your heart by faith in him, you realize that everything your heart really longs for finds its fulfillment in him. And so let's not be filled with anything else, but let's be filled with a walk with God, filling our minds with his word, filling our hearts with affections. That's why we sing songs like we do. We pray the way we do. We read the Bible like we do. We gather together because we'll be filled with his spirit. Last point, point number four says this, to walk wisely, you and I must make church life a priority. Priority. Verse 19 in closing, sort of says this. It says that we're to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. To walk wisely, guys, means that we make church life a priority, specifically in our singing and our thanksgiving and our mutual submission and care for one another. This first thing he says that we are to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. Now, that'd be really odd if your greeter team at your church, they would address one another when you walk through the door with, hello, how are you? Good to see you. Like, that'd be really odd to address one another in psalms and spiritual hymns. That's really weird for us to do, right? But this is what it's really meaning is that you and I are to to be joyful in our interactions with one another, speaking words of truth and grace that are uplifting like a song to one another. 
I don't want to get into the weeds with what's the difference between a psalm and a hymn and a spiritual song, but I just want to give you this outline real quick. A psalm can just be a song that's sung about God, like we see in the Psalms, where you pouring out your heart and your struggles before him. Maybe a hymn is really a song that's sung to God about him. And maybe a spiritual song is a song sung that really addresses certain realities of the Christian faith and experience. Like something you turn on the Christian radio, you would hear songs about the experience of the Christian life. That would be like a spiritual song. So in this text, we're learning that singing really has two audiences. For Christians, when we sing, we're reminding one another about God's character. That's why we listen to one another. That's why it's so important. Guys, I remember as a student pastor for uh, seven years before I moved here and began to pastor a, a church here in Boston. But I was a student pastor. There was a girl in my ministry that had a tragic accident happen to her. She's walking across the street, had her earbuds in, walking in the crossway, and someone came around the corner and she was hit by a car and she died. A precious girl, Brittany Palmer, in my ministry. And I watched her mother, who's a single mother, come to the hospital and pray and cry over her girl's body. That next day, we were in church and she's singing about the goodness of God. This mother prayed over her girl's passed away body about the goodness of God. And when I heard her sing, because I'm standing near her, I'm filled with this all in wonder about how God can move someone's heart to praise him in the midst of this. And why could she sing that God's good? Because she knows that that death for her daughter was not the end, that God would redeem her body, bring her back in glory, that she would see her daughter again when she went to heaven because Brittany placed her faith in Jesus and so she had a place with Jesus in heaven. Guys, when we sing and address and we sing these songs and we watch each other sing and we make church life on a Sunday a priority, you grow in your faith because you're watching your brother and sister sing these songs when they're going through hardship, not just forcing their way through, but really believing these things and it strengthens your faith. So that's why at Koa, we sing songs that are based on God's word and they're focused on God's character. Our goal at each service is so that every person would worship Jesus and get a real sense of what he's done for us. So friends, make church life a priority. If person, please gather in person if you are able to safely do that. That's why we sing to one another. Last two things here. It says that we are to, uh, in verse 20, be giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the failure to give thanks to God for what he's given us in life is actually the root cause of sin. Being in community and helps with this. Not that we're to compare our lives to one another, but when you're in community and going through hardship and you are ungrateful, someone in the community can remind you of God's care and faithfulness to you. They can comfort you in the storm that you're facing. And so we are to be involved in church life to help each other give thanks always and everything to God. Doesn't mean we give thanks to God for terrible evil and sin, but we give thanks that God can even use terrible and evil and sin for good purposes, like we see in Jesus's death on the cross. How can the murder of an innocent man be good? Well, that evil was used for our salvation. And so even in the midst of heartache and evil, there, we can somehow give thanks to God knowing that he will use it for your good. And last, what do we see from this text? We see verse 21. We're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This last command about submitting is really most surprising and hard for us. People led by the Spirit are to submit to one another, a mutual caring. 
but we're often offended by that word submission, thinking that maybe it's a passive or it's a weak word that really deals with negative self-image or giving up control and our free will. But that's not Paul's intent. In fact, submission is actually a mutual care for one another. And it takes great strength and a strong will to do this in church. This was so important to New Testament writers to remind the church to mutually submit to one another because this is how Christ served us. He laid down his life. That was king became servant. And he lived his life of humility and kindness and even to the point of death for us. So mutual submission, it does this in the church. Mutual submission does not allow us to promote ourselves above someone else, but it neither makes us a doormat to be used by others. Biblical mutual submission makes sure that no one gets dominated and no one gets stepped on. It means that everyone in the community is supported and enhanced. And wouldn't this be great if our culture saw how we mutually submit to one another? Guys, this, what, this is what walking in wisdom really means. That you and I would live this way in community. That we would seek fulfillment in God's ways and not our own. That we would seek God's will and not our way. And that we would steward our time for God's glory. This week, let's be careful for the Barbies and the Legos and the landmines on the ground. And let's walk wisely in God's way. Okay.